Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. If you've been listening for a while, you are aware that we have no ads and we have no sponsors. We rely entirely on you. We rely on the Patreon model for people to pay it forward, keep the mics on, the conversations like the one you're about to hear happening. It's not a one-way street. There's tons of additional content all available right now on that Patreon feed. It's at the top of the podcast you're listening to now. So why not do me a favor while you're listening, click that link and join us for a month. Try it out. Throw us the price of a cup of coffee in the scone and think about it as your bit of monthly activism. We always say it's more than a podcast platform. It is activism. We are activists first and foremost and you'll be helping support that in the simplest way possible. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for everybody who likes and shares and recommends. But please do join us. It makes all the difference. I'm going to stop rabbiting on. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Lost in Implementation podcast, the pod that is looking at the unfinished work of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and asking the important question of what next? This is, of course, the big 25th anniversary year and we are having the hard conversations on what still needs to be done. Today, I'm delighted to be having a conversation around women's political participation. Now, women made up only 10% of the negotiating team, but boy, did they wield far greater influence and what made it into the agreement itself. Today, a third of our MLAs in Northern Ireland are women, but that number is lower at a local level, and we do still have much work to remain. In the text of the Good Friday Agreement itself, women are mentioned only twice. One of that is the uh, full uh, commitment to women's full participation, political participation. I'm joined today by SDLP MLA Cara Hunter, hello Cara, Aoife Clements, who's the director at 5050 NI, and Kate Farron, who is from the Women's Coalition Northern Ireland. You're all very welcome. And listen, I want to set the scene first. So Kate, I'm going to come to you. And I'm going to ask you a little bit about 1998 and the run-up to the agreement and why it was important uh, to get that commitment to women's full and equal political participation into the agreement itself? Well, from our perspective, it was very difficult to get the issue of women's meaningful political participation uh, actually at the talks themselves, uh, to the extent that we had to create uh, our own political party, uh, promoting uh, the, the women's political participation, amongst other things, uh, and get ourselves around the table. Um, I'm pleased to see that there are many more uh, women uh, MLAs and women in uh, public life in Northern Ireland uh, as, as a whole. Um, but we also knew that our participation was conditional on elections and we wanted to be uh, as sure as we could be that the issue would remain uh, for the long term. And I think that if you, the particular phrase that you read out, um, I think is, I think we also made sure to, to have it put it presented in a particular context, which was against the backdrop, back, backdrop of, uh, communal violence. Um, this is the reason why it, it, you know, that, that these are the priorities that we need to have. And this is the shape of the society that we want to bring forward with this agreement. So it was really important for us to put uh, women's uh, political participation uh, in there uh, as a hook because it's something that's intimately linked with peace and stability. Mm-hmm. 
And can you tell us, Kate, was it difficult to get that commitment into the agreement? Um, it was, uh, you know, it had to be argued for. And I recall, uh, <clears throat> I recall um, some of our interlocutors uh, in the, the drafting team on the Brit- British and Irish uh, government side of things um, asking the question, yes, well, but you know, why is it so important? You know, and so we have other things, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really need to be there explicitly, does it? You know, what's what's the issue here? Um, and one of uh, our, our colleagues, I think it was Avla Kilmurray at the time said, well, you know, we've been living in an armed patriarchy for the last 30 years. So this is, you know, so we want to address that. We want to make sure that that's recognized. And we want to, um, we want to have our right to be at the table and participate um, uh, front and center in the agreement, uh, you know. So it's so it was that that was that was the context. It's not just women's political participation. It was set against the, the specific backdrop of the um, the, the communal violence uh, of the conflict. And Aoife, set a little bit of the context as to where we are now uh, in Northern Irish politics in terms of women's participation. So. Currently, we are at the highest level ever in terms of women in the Assembly. So in the last Assembly election, um, the number of women elected was thirty, almost 37% uh, women, um, which is great. Uh, it's not where it should be, but, you know, it's definitely an improvement from, you know, the previous years before. Um, and then in terms of local politics, currently the numbers are pretty low. Um, the last councils would have been around 22%, which is pretty abysmal. Um, looking at the candidates for this election, it looks to be about 32% of the candidates are women. So hopefully that would translate into around 30% or so uh, being elected into councils. But obviously we'll have to wait and see about that. So, I mean, in the 30%, it is good in the sense that 30% is generally considered a critical mass when it comes to women in politics. So beyond that point, you know, women's uh, issues tend to start being on the agenda. And we have seen that in Northern Ireland. You know, we've had some really great feminist legislation ever since we reached that 30% mark. Um, so there's a positive in that sense, but it's certainly not where it should be, which is at, you know, 50%. Mm. And um, is there a divide in terms of representation between unis and nationalist parties? Yeah, there definitely is a divide. Um, nationalist parties do seem to be better at this. Um, Sinn Féin has its own internal quotas, so they are always fielding 50% candidates women. In the last election, STLP was not 50%, but were doing quite well. Um, and then, yeah, the unionist parties weren't doing well at all. I mean, the UUP actually ended up with less female MLAs than they did the last time, and the DUP's level was still pretty low as well. Um, for the other parties, they do quite well. Alliance had 50% uh, of their re- elected reps are women now. Um, and also the Green Party, the same as Sinn Féin have internal quotas. They always feel 50% women and so do people for profit. So, yeah, there's definitely a divide. Those in the middle um, in the other category, I suppose, and in the nationalist category seem to be doing much better than the unionist parties. Um, women in like unionism itself it, it is a big issue uh finding women candidates um in that area um so it's definitely something that needs to be looked at there's definitely a cultural issue there um but yeah there's definitely a, a very clear actually divide between the two mm. and cara what about yourself now you um maybe you can speak to a little bit of your own experience um as a young woman mla and why uh, women's political participation is so important. 
Well, I think in my own experience, I can understand um, why in this election and previous elections, young women and girls have been hesitant to step forward. I mean, we've heard some of the stories over the past couple of years about the impact of misogynistic attitudes both online and offline towards um, you know, female leaders, both in the community and in politics. Um, so I think there really is an understanding and it is a cultural issue. I think Ipa is totally correct, but I've seen firsthand um, the real value uh, of female leaders um, at the table where decisions are being made. And I think around those kind of crucial issues around menopause, childcare, uh, reproductive rights, we've really seen uh, so much progression on those issues, especially in the last uh, mandate. Um, but certainly even looking at uh, this local council election and going out and seeing so many talented young women, there definitely is that level of hesitancy. And it's how do we challenge that? What can we do as a party? What can we do as an MLA um, to try and speak to young girls and, and women and, and give them that aspect of self-belief and to tell them you're, you know, you'd be a fantastic uh, public representative and I think that we have a long way to go from an education perspective especially and self-development and um, self-belief confidence skills speaking publicly um, that's something I didn't receive in my own education and I think that moving forward uh, looking at the numbers we've talked about today I think it's great to see progress up to around uh, 30 37 percent um, but I think we can do I think we can do a lot better and we've come far but we need to we need to go further yeah it's a good point you're bringing up there about the misogyny and, and the challenges of being a woman in this space. And I wonder, Kate, uh, your thoughts on that in terms of it's great that we have this commitment under the Good Friday Agreement for women's full political participation, but the reality is that women are still operating in a political space that is male-dominated and there are far higher level uh, higher levels of um, harassment and abuse being experienced uh, by women in politics. And I suppose that's something that that commitment can't really address in itself. Yeah, well, I think that they, I mean, the issue of the, the commitment, as you say, um, words are words and they need to be uh, implemented, which I understand is the whole premise of your podcast. Um, and it's not just that point. I mean, but there is uh, there is a value in uh, setting out what we aspire to. And at the time we wanted to uh, we, we wanted to set out a vision of what we wanted from our society. And of course, it takes political will on this part of the agreement as it takes on all the rest of the agreement. On deciding whether we want to ultimately choose to work together in furtherance uh, of the wishes and desires of the people of Northern Ireland, uh, or we want to continue to, uh, to to work apart and not to uh, work for the, the the better good of everyone. So, yes, we have the the language. For me, it's important that the language is there, um, uh, but we also need to have the actions, and that means that our political leaders, uh, be they male or female, uh, should be um, actively uh, supporting and introducing, if it takes legislation, but also um, acting, um, using themselves, using their own leadership as examples in where they promote women, the types of legislation, the types of policy, policies that take account of the the differences, the different ways in which uh, men and women, for example, experience uh, experience society, experience life, uh, and thinking just thinking about the gender lens when they are uh, when they are formulating, designing, crafting, and uh, and ultimately uh, adopting legislation and, and policy. So the words are important, but also the deeds. And I wonder, um, you know, what ideas there are around how to address some of these challenges or how to give greater meaning 
uh, to that language. I mean, Aoife, you spoke about how some parties have adopted internal quotas. Are there other mechanisms or approaches that could be used to give greater meaning to this commitment? I mean, I think internal quotas or even a legislative quota is probably one of the best things that we could have because it, it gets it immediately forces parties to do something about the issue because we could try and change the culture, which is obviously what we want to do, but that's going to take so much longer and we need equal representation now. So some kind of, yeah, like legislative quota, I think would be perfect. Um, that all kind of depends on the political context. Personally, I think that the sort of strategy that the Labour Party uses of all women shortlists and safe seats is a really good strategy for Northern Ireland because we have the sort of higher than average number of seats that would be considered safe. Um, but yeah, like I, I think that that needs to be done. In terms of like changing the culture, education is obviously where we need to go. Men need to be educated on misogyny. You know, both me and politicians sort of in the assembly um, and, and in the wider party need to be educated on these issues. Um, and there just needs to be more, I guess, what parties could be doing more is putting more effort into recruiting young women into the party. I know that some parties do have like internal women's groups. Alliance for sure have one. I know the UAP have one. And those are really great for like reaching out and finding those young women that want to get into politics because women need so much more encouragement than men. And I really hate to say that, but it, it is true. Um, I remember speaking to um, an, an MP, a Tory MP once who used to be in charge of recruitment and said that uh, when he gave the like form to a woman to fill in, he would have to pester her for maybe a year or two to get her to fill it in. But if he gave it to a guy, he would have filled in by the end of the day. Yeah. So there is this like stark contrast between like what it takes for a woman to feel like she can do it and what it takes for a man to feel like he can do it. So there needs to be more work put into encouraging women into the party. Then when they're in, there needs to be education and misogyny because we want to keep them there. And then we also need, like I said, the, maybe like a legislative quota to just to make sure that we're, we're getting the women uh, elected because that's what we need in order for equality and better health care and better education. We need more women in politics. Um, and I've got the same question to you, Cara, in terms of what do you think can be done to um, give greater meaning to this commitment? And I'm also going to bring up um, social media because that is the big change since 1998 is we're now operating uh, in the digital era where we have social media, which can be incredibly beneficial as a platform, but equally can be incredibly toxic and challenging and a source of significant threats uh, for women in public life. So what do you think, Cara, in terms of how do we give meaning and how do we manage social media <laughs> in that context? That's the number one question. Well, I think when it comes to attracting female candidates, I suppose uh, in our own party, we have a women's group also. and We utilize a body system. Um, so we will body up um, perhaps with uh, a younger woman who started to get involved in politics. Um, I mean, I entered when I was 23 and it's so intimidating and you really do look for that mentorship. And thankfully, I found that in Claire Hanna and Nicola Mallon and sort of took me under my wing. Um, but for us, I think the body system is a really important one because, um, you know, you can bring people along to meetings empower them to speak, empower them to ask questions because um, women really do care and that they're fantastic. Some of the young ladies I've spoken with, they really do struggle with knowing um, what to say. And I think you already know what to say. It's just getting that confidence to, to get it out and, and to feel 
to feel okay and to know that they are not only uh, welcomed but celebrated in the political space. Uh, when talking about social media, I think it's an interesting one because it's not only about getting female candidates, it's about keeping them there. And that social media aspect, I think, is is one that, uh, in my own experiences, has been uh, unbelievably negative. Um, and so I can understand um, why there is such an apprehension um, for female candidates. I think there really is an emphasis now on uh, social media giants to really um, step up and look at their moral uh, and professional duty um, to keep people safe uh, online, especially when as politicians and as, as counsellors, um, you know, we utilise social media to get our messaging out there, uh, to let people know about what's going on in the community or how they can get support. And so that's really crucial stuff. We need to be online. Um, I would say that social media has helped me connect with my own experience with a range of constituents that you probably wouldn't have had the access to. So um, I think as we're in election season, you continue to see uh, stories about um, the impact of abuse online. Um, it's actually, it's interesting to watch how, uh, you know, as a politician, you would expect so much abuse in real life, you know, if you're putting up posters and things like that. But now we're seeing in the digital age, how these platforms are being utilized in the worst way um, to keep to keep people out of politics, really. I think uh, some sinister campaigns that we've seen, but uh, I mean, there have been some um, really positive movements. I know that uh, we had the online forum discussion with representatives from all parties talking about their experiences um, online and how we can lobby essentially the British government with the online harms, harms bill um, to make those important changes. And I have to say, it was very harrowing hearing the stories of other women right across the north, um, especially in rural constituencies. There are unique difficulties with uh, rural women um, representing rural constituencies and how that plays with personal safety as well. Um, and yeah, Kate, I wonder... Um if we can reflect a little bit on the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, um, because the Women's Coalition is uh, is at long last being recognised for the incredible work that was done. And uh, I'm wondering if you feel like women's participation in politics and public life is at long last being recognised uh, in terms of the peace process. Um, well, I, I think the it's very kind of you to say so, but I think that we have been plugging away uh, for many, many years, um, speaking about our experiences and uh, advising and informing other peace processes all over the globe. And I think that's been one very uh, strong lobby. The type of the international, the international aspect of what we've, uh, what we did. Um, and as I said, you know, obviously the Women's Coalition wound up uh, uh, in the early 2000s, um, but other women, you know, we're pleased to have been able to make a contribution to clearing the space for other women to have, uh, have uh, to, to engage uh, fully in, in, in the political sphere. Um, but there are, you know, there are issues that would have increased uh, further um, women's participation, and that would have been keeping um, the greater number of seats per constituency, um, and uh, also really actively promoting the civic forum. So the civic forum would have been, um, you know, not uh, discarded as it as it was. Uh, maybe there's an opportunity to to bring it into into play again. But um, yeah, there was, uh, you know, there were the type of issues. Um, the, the agenda, I mean, we had uh, things to say, opinions about a very broad range of issues, socioeconomic, the conflict, 
um, mediation negotiation. And uh, yeah, it would have been good to have had the opportunity to to, to keep going with that. Um, but I think 25 years on, yes, we can be proud of what we did, but we also have learned that peace processes uh, take a long time. It's a generational, because you're talking about generational change for the embedding of a, an, of a peace process. I think it was Aoife said earlier about the need to change culture, and that is like uh, turning around the Titanic. You know, it takes a long, long time. Uh, it's a big, it's a big behavioral, attitudinal change, and that does that does take time. We need to allow it that time, um, but we need to keep uh, engaged leadership and our, you know, with their hands firmly on the tiller um, and the vision in mind of where it is we want to get to and where it is we want to get to. I think the what we drafted in the Good Friday Agreement remains valid, uh, as valid today as it did then. Well, on the point of the Civic Forum, I could not uh, agree more. And in fact, uh, we are doing a, an episode on the Civic Forum and Civic Society uh, in Northern Ireland is currently mobilizing to try and fill that space. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to be working with a number of Civic Society groups to try and action some kind of movement Um we can't obviously mm-hmm. create the Civic Forum, but we certainly can create something uh, in its stead. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do with that space. And I think your point around mm-hmm. how that could have facilitated greater inclusion uh, is very accurate. And also the point around the reduction of seats, um, you know, that has, I suppose, had an impact on the smaller parties as well uh, and the inc- uh, decrease in inclusivity and, and diverse candidates. Um, I want to go to you, Karen, and just ask in terms of uh, whether you think women's political participation and the role of women in the peace process is at long last being recognized, uh, or is it not necessarily there yet? Well, I think it's interesting because what we have seen after 25 very long years um, is finally uh, some kind of recognition, although nowhere near where we would like it to be. I was lucky enough um, to listen to a panel discussion um, with Women in Leadership with Monica McWilliams. And it, it, it really hurt to see how these women who done so much uh, and fought so hard to get to the table to have women's needs um, and issues heard is only finally getting recognised now. And I think an interesting point that was touched on was around the lack of women in our history books. Um, that we learn about um, each and every year as we go through our GCSEs and our A-levels. And, you know, it really begs the question of why? Why hasn't this been mentioned uh, until now? And how do we inspire young women if we have an absence of those incredible, powerful female leaders um, uh, to inspire a new generation and they're not in our history books? So uh, I think while it's fantastic to see, um, you know, a representation I think there was an art exhibit and things like that um, to, to represent the role that females played. But I think we have a long way to go. Long way to go. Anifa, what do you think are some of the things that can be done to increase women's political participation? I mean, how do we make it more accessible, more attractive, more sustainable to be a woman in public life? Um, I think there are a few practical things that need to be done. So there needs to be better childcare available to women in politics. Currently, there's no crash at Stormont that needs to be changed. Um, there needs to be maternity leave for elected representatives. Um, so just to make this job actually compatible with womanhood, you know, like if, if we can't do the job, like we're all going to be able to, we can't, we can't do it. Um, so those are the practical things. And then I think that the online harassment 
really, truly needs to be addressed and it needs to be thoroughly addressed. I mean, I don't know how useful the online harms bill is going to be, but hopefully it does, you know, um, prohibit some of this abuse that's happening. I mean, Kara said herself she has had horrific experiences of abuse. Every single woman in politics that I've spoken to has some kind of story to tell me. And, you know, over the sort of anniversary here, people have asked me, you know, do you think the abuse is worse now than it was back in 98? Um, do you think women has it easier now? And what I always say is that it's not, it's different. It's not any worse. It's not any better. It's just different. It's moved from sort of in person to online. And in some ways, it's so much more sinister. Um, that is a really big issue that needs to be addressed. For me, I think that is one of the major barriers to getting women into politics. And then, as I sort of touched on earlier, there is definitely a confidence gap. And at 5050 and I, that's something that we're trying to address with our training uh, courses that we do, you know, to get just to give women the knowledge and the skills that they need to run so they feel confident to go out and canvas, they feel confident about what their role is going to be should they get elected, you know, things like that. Um, so those are the main things that I need to be changed. Obviously, there's a lot more cultural changes that need to be done, a lot of education around misogyny, especially in the workplace, um, in the assembly and in councils. Um, but yeah, childcare, maternity leave, the addressing of harassment, and then you know skills training that we're providing is is what needs to be done. And what about you, Cara? What would you say needs to be done in terms of practical changes that can make uh, this a more accessible and attractive job for women? Well, I think women often um, in society we tend to uh, bear a lot of responsibilities with caregiving, uh, meaning you know. Oftentimes, it's more than one to two people within our family or our family circle. And that can also play as a role, um, a barrier and a difficulty in why a lot of women won't uh, enter politics. But I also think um, there is questions around the flexibility of the job as well, the timing of council meetings. We know that Stormont can sometimes sit to one o'clock in the morning. Now, I'm not a mother yet, but I can understand how that must be uh, deeply frustrating for female representatives as oftentimes they have to juggle all those responsibilities at home as well. Um, but I also think there is wider questions about uh, personal safety. Also, I mean, the act of canvassing itself is knocking on a stranger's door. That can be quite off-putting and quite uh, nerve-wracking. And um, as Ipa has said there, it's really about instilling um, you know, confidence to go to a door, but also ensuring that our legislation protects women. Uh, I know that uh, in some councils around the north, uh, some councillors, I believe in Belfast City Council, are given an office that they can operate out of. But during my time uh, on my council, where I sat in Derry City and Strabane District Council, there was no safe space to meet um, constituents. And that was an issue I had raised with the council was that if I wanted to meet a constituent, I would have to go either to their home, um, maybe I wouldn't feel comfortable with that, or would have to pay to meet them somewhere like a library room or go for a coffee or something like that. And I just thought that wasn't really equal footing. I thought there should be a safe, shared space that is accessible and affordable and shouldn't be a barrier to you um, uh, doing your job. So, Kate, okay, I just want to come to you in sort of closing thoughts. Um, you know, this is the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. We're speaking today around women's political participation. But there are other parts of the agreement as well that have not necessarily been fully implemented. And it would be good to get your thoughts on where we are at 25 on the implementation and what can be done to try and sort of some of this unfinished work of the agreement forward. Well, I think that uh, in terms of the agreement, uh, we should reflect really on how far we have actually come. I know that it, uh, things uh, seem tough at the minute. 
uh, but we've been through tough times before, but we do need good political leadership to lift us, to elevate it. And I think that's in part what the, the anniversary and the presence of uh, uh, the, the Clintons, for example, and uh, other political leaders, uh, uh, the, the former Taoiseach and Prime Minister uh, last week was able to do and the kind of reflection, I believe, that the, uh, the conference was hosted by Queen's um, so I think that uh, we shouldn't forget how far we've come and things that have been achieved by the agreement itself. Um, but uh, it's the agreement is something that needs to be taken. Their needs stock needs to be taken quite a lot. Um, I still believe very much that the agreement holds the key to where we want to go in the future. Um, and I also would suggest that the um, the uh, the whole. Re- exiting of the UK from the European Union um, really pulled the rug from under our feet um, and brought back onto the table things which which were settled um, uh, in, in practical terms. So I think we shouldn't forget how far we've come. Um, we can see where we have yet to go. Um, and the Good Friday Agreement uh, it still remains, I think, the best guide we have uh, to, getting, to getting to that better place. And Aoife... Um- same question to you and also I suppose more broadly, you know, why is it so important that when we look at this question of implementation and how we advance our peace process, that women are a part of that? Um yeah, I mean women it's it's vital that women are a part of that, um, because women are really key when it comes to peace building. Um we've seen that through many, many post conflict um uh co- context throughout the world that women really are the people that rebuild at a grassroots level and rebuild communities and they're so vital to like long-term peace um and also you know women have proven you know in in academic research it's proven that women are so much better at reaching consensus and working in cross-party ways than men and that is a vital skill in northern Ireland and any other post um conflict context so yeah women are vital to maintaining and you know achieving peace so that's why we need more of them in our politics and Cara you're currently uh, unable to fulfill your full duties as the Northern Ireland Assembly is currently not up and running um, what are your thoughts when it comes to the challenges we're facing as a society in terms of implementation of the agreement and what can be done to sort of move things forward well, I think firstly, as an MLA, it's deeply frustrating, um, given that you're given a, a mandate to go into to Stormont and uh, you've been democratically elected and yet you can't use your, your platform or your role to better the lives of your constituents and their families. So it's deeply frustrating. And then not to mention the situation where we are with 110 million pounds of underinvestment in our education system. Uh, and we've seen recently how young people have really taken a hit um, with the different cuts to baby books, free school fees. And of course, um, primary school mental health counselling, it's absolutely atrocious and sadly symbolic of where we are as a society. And I think we can do so much better at things work best uh, when we do work together. But it's interesting because I think in the absence um, of a functioning executive and um, a stable government, we have seen women really step up uh, in our communities as community workers and leaders. And we've seen how underpaid and underfunded and underappreciated that they truly are. Um, so I really have seen, even in the absence uh, of a functioning government, women are stepping up in our communities and providing support. Uh, and when they do, good things happen. Well, as we've uh, as we've been discussing, uh, lots of progress made, but we have a lot of work 
left to do to give true meaning to this commitment of women's full and equal participation uh, in political life. I want to thank you all so much for joining me for this conversation. It's been really wonderful to have you here and to be able to talk about this this issue and how we try to move things forward. Thank you so much, Cara. Thank you so much, Aoife. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining me. You've been listening to the Lost Implementation Podcast. Until next time.